This is Purple Radio On Demand. Okay, uh, good afternoon. Um, I Today is going to be a very a marginally different episode. Um, it's with great sadness that I am alone here at MC in the Purple Radio studio. Uh, Zach is busy in an exam. And for unforeseen circumstances, we were unable to arrange a guest. We were meant to have um, Millie Hognes on to do cryptocurrency, but that's been rescheduled for next term. So uh, keep a lookout for that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm effectively going to ramble for an hour as best as I can without umming and ahhing too much. Um, so coming in today, I was thinking, well, what is the best thing that I could probably speak on for 50 minutes uh, in, a, in a sort of monologue fashion? And seeing today was the 15th of March, I thought, well, the Ides of March, there's no better thing. Beware the Ides of March. Quite a lot of people will be familiar with it in pop culture. It is, of course, the um, assassination of Julius Caesar on the 15th of March, 44 BC. Uh, Et tu, Brute, uh, a very common phrase associated with this. So today is a day that you must beware of those closest to you, maybe trying to stab you in the back. I'm not trying to stir the pot or anything, but just uh, be mindful of it. Um, so, in a way, I, I just want to use this time to kind of go through what the Eyes of March is, what the consequences of it were, and, uh, yeah, interesting anecdotes that can go along with it. So, I haven't really uh, studied the history of the Roman Republic as much as I have the Augustan period, so I turned to SPQR, Mary Beard's book on Rome, which is uh, as good a source as any to give uh, information on basically major events in Rome. Uh, and there are there's a brief kind of four-page segment where Beard sums up uh, the Ides of March in a pretty succinct way. And I'm going to start by just going through that, uh, giving little quotes and going through them. So Julius Caesar was murdered on the 15th of March, 44 BC, the Ides on the Roman dating system. In parts of the Mediter Mediterranean world, the civil war had by no means ended. Pompey's son Sextus still had a force of at least six legions in Spain and was continuing to fight for his father's cause. But Caesar was mustering a vast force of almost 100,000 soldiers for an attack on the Parthian Empire. A revenge for the ignominious defeat of Crassius at Carthage and a useful opportunity for military glory against a foreign rather than a Roman enemy. It was just a few days before he was due to leave for the east on the 18th of March that a group of 20 or so dis disgruntled senators supported at actively or passively by a few dozen more, killed him. Very famous scene. If any of you have read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, you'll be familiar with it. It's, uh, it's often in uh, TV and film, the, the killing of, of Caesar in, in, the, um, in the chamber, as it were, is, is heightened uh, to the max degree of uh, dramatic... Uh, to, to the, to, the, to the greatest dramatic element possible by uh, any would-be director. I mean, because there is the lure around it and just the context of what's going on is, is enticing enough to be able to kind of create such a, um, such a heightened scene. Um, so the, the deed took place in, in a new Senate house, which uh, Pompey himself had, had built into his theatre complex. Um, and in front of a statue of himself, which uh, ended up being splattered with Caesar's blood, this is where he is killed. And I think there was a there's a ritual ceremony after this where that very statue would be kind of restained with blood, so it was remembered what had gone down. Um, 
Beard writes, thanks in part to the reworking of the theme in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, the murder of the Roman dictator in the name of Libertas has been the template for last-ditch opposition to tyranny and for principled assassinations ever since. So, uh, it's such a such a bloody uh, such a bloody act, often kind of romanticized in 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 terms of standing up for freedom. Uh, you, you've got to remember that the this is effectively the fall of the Roman Republic. This is um, if it hadn't already been kickstarted, this certainly uh, ignites the flame, which will make room for the Roman Empire. And um, you know, to what extent were they acting selfishly out of their own positions that they felt threatened these senators, or were they really standing up for the quote-unquote libertas of the Roman Republic, the freedom it was able to bestow on people, or so they thought. Um, Beard writes, interestingly, it was no coincidence, for example, that John Wilkes Booth used Ides uh, as the code for the day on which he planned to kill Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Booth, I think, he said, when he killed Lincoln, it was six semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. And there's a, a huge underlying thing going on with the Ides of March that C Caesar, as we will see, Caesar had basically outgrown his, well, not outgrown, overstepped his uh, position in the Roman Republic to such an extent that he was now a uh, monarchical uh, figure close to that of an emperor. He actually ended up taking the title of imperator, I want to say, uh, at some stage, but the so you know getting bit too big for your boots and that's obviously what booth thought lincoln had become um and cites that's always to tyrants quoting i'd so there's a very similar sort of um uh you can make a strong connection between the motivation of both of the assassins uh, well of the many assassins of caesar and then maybe that of booth kind of in their own warped way thinking that they are acting for freedom but maybe it's just personal spite which has led them down this path um, Beard continues, as a backward glance through Roman history shows, this was the last in a series of murders of popular radical but arguably too powerful politicians that started with the lynching of Tiberius Gracchus in 133 BC. The question must be, crucially, what was Caesar trying to do and what made him so unacceptable to this group of senators that assassination seemed the only way out? Beard obviously hinting there that there, are, there have previously been many politicians who have, um, in the Republic at this stage who have overstepped their mark um, to quite a significant degree. But why is it specifically Caesar who finds himself the victim of such a kind of, uh, well, you could say premeditated, but in, in one way such a sporadic and um, gory outburst of violence amongst those who he thought was closest, closest to him. I mean, to be stabbed 23 times is quite a, uh, you know, they, they definitely made sure the job was done. Um, so, why did the Ides of March occur? Why was Caesar left dead on the floor of the Senate? Um, he initiated a vast program of reforms, going beyond even the scale of Sulla's. One of them governs life even now, says Beard. Uh, for with some help from the specialist scientists he met in Alexandria, Caesar introduced into Rome what has become the modern Western system of timekeeping. The traditional Roman year was only 355 days long and it had for centuries been the job of Roman priests to add in an extra month from time to time to keep the civic calendar in step with natural seasons. For whatever reason, probably a combination of lack of expertise and lack of will, they had signally failed to get their calculations correct. This, the result was that the calendar year and the natural year were sometimes many weeks apart with a Roman equivalent of harvest festivals falling when the crops were still growing and the climate 
in what was called April, feeling more like February. The truth is that it was always dangerous in Republican history to assume that any given date is an accurate indication of the weather. Using Alexandrian know-how, Caesar corrected the error and for the future, established a year with 365 days, with an extra day inserted at the end of February every four years. This was a far more significant outcome of his visit to Egypt than any dalliance with Cleopatra. Okay, so literally shaping uh, time itself, the course of the year. Um, I guess that's the first, first, um, first footnote in his overstepping the mark. Um, I don't know. I mean, if you think about it in in modern terms, I can only imagine if. I don't know, Trump or uh, Johnson in their heyday came along and said they wanted to extend the course of the year. Um, but, you know, it takes it, it takes a lot of self-assurance, that's to say the least. Um, other measures hack back to familiar themes in previous hundred years. Caesar launched, for example, a large number of new overseas colonies to resettle the poor from the city of Rome, following up Gaius Gracchus's initiative with a successful foundation at Carthage. It was this, presumably, that allowed him to get away with reducing the number of recipients of free, gain, free grain by about half to 150,000 in all. He extended Roman citizenship to those living in the far north of Italy beyond the river Po and at least proposed granting Latin status to the population of Sicily. Uh, you could see that being particularly controversial amongst the old kind of the old guard of the Senate. Um, I mean, there's still kind of uh, tensions between Sicily and uh, mainland Italy to this day, to the extent, well, not really tensions, but there's an awareness of a separation in their cultural background to the degree in which, I, I mean, one example I'm thinking of is you might hear someone uh, from Liverpool say, I ain't, I ain't English, I'm Scouse. Um, they feel more affiliated to that sort of culture than they do to the the nation which kind of possesses them in the same way I'm Scottish. You get quite a lot of Scottish people saying, I am British, I'm Scottish. And it, also to the same extent, um, previously, probably to a, a stronger extent, but you do get quite a lot of people who consider themselves Sicilian and not Italian. Anyway, I digress. Uh, but he had even more ambitious plans to overhaul the Roman government including attempts to regularize, even micromanage, all kinds of aspects of civic organization, both in Rome and throughout Italy. These range from questions of who could hold office in local Italian communities, brackets, no grave diggers, pimps, actors, or auctioneers, unless they were retired, to issues, issues of road maintenance, householders, to be responsible for the footpath in front of their house, traffic management, blah, blah, blah. So this is a ramping up of domestic policy, uh, the structure and framework of the Republic to a pretty, it might not seem that significant, but I mean, he's changed the calendar. We're, we're getting uh, the recipients of free grain have, have been halved. Uh, we're talking about changes in citizenship, changes in, um, you know, who could be office holders. Um, so, I mean, this is no sort of, this is no, uh, this is no like hollow policy if that makes sense this is like a caesar definitely has a sort of um a, de a definite will to leave a mark on the republic when he leaves um he himself had also become part of the calendar this is really interesting as well as rewriting it so uh, you know july uh is from julius which i'm sure some of you will know um so there you go uh literally writing himself into the fabric of the year um he was allowed to wear triumphal dress almost wherever he liked, including the triumphal laurel wreath, which he found convenient for disguising his bald patch. Uh, if you are 
a member of the Republic in a political role, if you're a senator or even if you're just someone on the street and you kind of see uh, your... Uh, you see the leader of the Republic just walking past in a very sort of uh, uh, ostentatious sort of way, um, you know, kind of flashing themselves, yeah, flashing themselves, not flashing themselves, but <laughs> flashing their outfits or their wealth or flaunting it, I should say. Um, that's already going to that's already going to annoy certain amounts of people when you there's all there's always going to be a tension of if someone who heads the Republic is moving too far away to. You know, is it a republic or is it a monarchy now? Um, and little things like that kind of uh, presentations of yourself as being higher in status and wealth um, than anyone around you by virtue of what you're wearing or how you're carrying yourself is is going to slowly uh, turn the tide against you. Um, again, we see more examples of him pushing the image of himself into the Republic. His statue was placed in all existing temples in Rome. His private house was even to be decorated with a triangular gable or pediment to give it the appearance of a temple, the home of a god. Um, Caesar was deified after his death, and we'll get into that, but already a sort of deification going on by, by himself. Um, Worse within the Roman context were the strong hints that he was aiming at becoming a king. So there you go. On one famous but rather murky occasion, just a month before his assassination, his loyal lieutenant, one of the consuls of the year, Mark Antony, who will obviously later become a huge figure, uh, used the religious festival of the Lupercalia to offer Caesar a royal crown. It was obviously a carefully choreographed piece of propaganda, and it may have been, and it may have been designed as a test of public opinion. Would the watching crowd cheer when Caesar was offered the crown or not? If it did, would that be a coup to accept? Even at the time, Caesar's response and the overall message were disputed. Did he, as Cicero thought, ask Antony to send the crown to the temple of Jupiter, the god who, Caesar insisted, was the only king of Rome? Or was it thrown to the audience and then put on a statue of Caesar? It was suspiciously unclear whether he was saying no thank you or yes please. Even if it was a no, no thank you, his position as dictator in various forms of 49 BC seemed pernicious to some. In 48 BC, after his victory at the Battle of Forlusus, the Senate again made him a dictator for a year, and then in 46 BC for 10 years. Finally, by the start of 44 BC, he had become a dictator for life. To the average observer, the difference between that and king must have been hard to discern. Under the terms of his dictatorship, Caesar had the right directly to nominate some candidates for election, and he controlled the other elections behind the scenes more efficiently than Pompey had done with, the note, with his notebook of future consuls' names. At the end of 45 BC, he caused a particular stir when the death of one of the sitting consuls was announced on the, la on the very last day of the year. Caesar instantly convened an assembly to elect, to elect one of his friends, Caius Canius Rebilius. Canonius Rebilius, I hope I'm saying that right, to the vacant post for just half a day. This prompted a flood of jokes from Cicero. These are actually pretty funny. So Canius was such an extraordinarily vigilant consul that, quote, he never once went to sleep in his whole term of office. In the consulship of Canonius, you may take it no, no one had breakfast, Cicero says. Who were the consuls when Canonius was consul, Cicero jokes. But he was also outraged, as were many conservatives. So... Uh, at this stage, Caesar is really ramping it up. Beard obviously talks about kind of the public perception that he, he has now overstepped his mark. And in a way, it's the the narrative is almost like he's he tricks the Republic in some way through. Um, you see it all the time. There's a there's a very good Netflix documentary called 
how to become a tyrant. And one way is just like manipulation of the um, manipulation of the people around you to such an extent that they, they don't actually even know that you're making a power charge. Um, if you look at kind of Stalin's rise to power in Russia, it was very, um, very choreographed, but subtly. So that by the time he had actually usurped into his position, everyone was kind of standing around going, well, how did that happen? Um, it's, it's kind of slowly chipping away at it and then you will find yourself in a position where you are untouchable and no one really even knows how, how you got there. And this is obviously what we're seeing with Caesar when you know, he's kind of uh, coerced the Senate into a position where they can make him a dictator for 10 years um, when he has now the, the pure, pure autonomy over who actually is going to who's going to come in as, as a candidate for an election. And then we see it to the extent where he's I mean, this is obviously going to be inflammatory in the Republic, amongst senators, amongst like the old guard, like Cicero, um, because it not, it's not like he's fixing elections. He's almost just joking about the Republic. He's taking it for a sort of joke. He's kind of using it to elect one of his, you know, using the power that he has to elect one of his mates into it for half a day. Um, he's not. He's not. He's no longer taking the republic seriously, and that's probably one of the main incentives for everyone um, to the, for the conspirators when it comes down to the Ides of March to finally um, to finally kill him, to to assassinate him. Um, this this I think is really interesting, which Beard talks on. So, what might now appear to be Caesar's best quality was, ironically, the one most flagrantly at odds with the republican tradition. He made much of his Clementia, mercy. Um, he pardoned rather than punished his enemies, and he made a display of renouncing cruel retribution against fellow Romans, provided they gave up their opposition to him. So, keep your enemy, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Caesar is literally trying to do that. So, anyone who's kind of tried to stiff him politically up until this time, he's thinking, well, you know, I'll have them on my side, and then I'll be able to kind of keep keep people happy to a certain degree you sometimes see with uh with our own government here uh well uh not with the opposition right now starmer obviously not letting corbyn come anywhere near uh the labor charge that he's he's trying to mount but you do see quite a lot of the time where there might be a so jeremy hunt there we go there's an example so jeremy hunt obviously was the last one to stand against boris johnson when they did that um leadership election amongst the conservatives but hunt still found himself very much within the inner workings of that government it's not like they necessarily just kept them away because it might be seen as trying to you you can kind of split the party if you if you then have two sides going on so you try to maybe just keep the opposition within your own group close within you obviously hunt and i got a pretty powerful position um announcing the budget today but obviously, sometimes that doesn't work. Uh, one can look to Blair Brown as like the prime example of that kind of all falling apart at the end. But Caesar does not have such uh, visions into the future. So he thinks, right, I'm going to try and keep everyone close. Um, so that's Cato, Metellus, Scipio, and Gallus were quite another, uh, another one. Um, and obviously, Brutus, most famously, right? So, but he provoked as much opposition as gratitude in many ways clementia was the political slogan of caesar's dictatorship so his mercy is merciful and in a way you can see why he's trying to push that because if you are um effectively trying to become a tyrant and a dictator if you can hide behind the logo of your mercy that's going to be quite 
a nice way for you to subtly try to strive towards the position that you want to get into. Um, it was just the case of simple ingratitude when Brutus, Brutus and the others turned on the man who had given them a second chance, writes Beard. It was partly that. It was partly motivated by self-interest and disgruntlement, driven by the assassin's sense of dignitas. But they were also defending one view of liberty and one view of the importance of Republican traditions going back in Rome's mythology. So there you go. Beard's kind of giving the crux of it there. They, there's, there's self-interest of the assassins to do this. Uh, you know, even to the brute, you know, even to if they've given him, a, if uh, he has given them a second chance at this stage, they don't even care. Um, obviously, most famously, it comes to Brutus, um, who was effectively a close political ally of Caesar at the time, who, well, so Caesar thought. Um, and he has pardoned him on previous occasions, but even he has turned to... Uh, stabbing stabbing caesar and and adding one one more fatal blow um to kill him one of the 23 stab wounds um in fact this is interesting as well that beard writes the design of a silver coin later issued by the assassins underscores this very point by featuring the distinctive hat the pileus or cap of liberty that slaves wore when they were granted their freedom the message was that the roman people had been liberated so going back to what i was saying earlier about the uh, john wilkes booth thing uh, Six Emperor Tyrannus and all that, the, you know, the coup, and you see it quite a lot of the time, you see it, you see military as coups against a kind of aging uh, figure who has overstepped and overstayed their welcome. They will be removed uh, for the sake of the people. And there will be a small group which effectively uh, are flying the banner um self-entitledly they're the the flying the banner of in their own like self-entitlement of the people what they're doing is for the freedom of the people the traditions of the the country and the government which they are trying to kind of well gain hold of but also remove from one sort of uh tyrannical figure i'm thinking here also of like the bolsheviks when they kind of go for the czar and they take it down that was that's a pretty small group of uh of people when you think about the population of russia but they are doing it for the whole people um you know but but even within this and within the the ides of march how much are these people doing it for their own gain do they really care or is is the uh is this is the so-called freedom of the people just the facade that they use to uh to actually gain control um anyway i digress uh <laughs> as we shall see as beard continues it will be it will have turned out to be a very odd sort of freedom so now i'd like to basically get into the uh, influence and lasting impacts of the Ides of March. Uh, but before I do, I will briefly just bring in some Suetonius. Um, this very interesting case about, so Caesar is deified after he's assassinated. So after he's assassinated in the Senate for effectively getting too big for his boots, he is um, deified formally uh, by the Senate. But before this, there is effectively an opinion in Rome that he has already become a god. Now, at his uh, funeral, Suetonius writes, he died in the 56th year of his age and was numbered among the gods, not only by a formal decree, but also in the conviction of the common people. For at the first of the games which his heir Augustus gave in honour of his apotheosis, a comet shone for seven successive days, 
rising about the eleventh hour and was believed to be the soul of Caesar, who had been taken to heaven. And this is why a star is set upon the crown of his head in his statue. It was voted that the curia in which he was slain be walled up, that the Ides of March be called the Day of Parasite, and that a meeting of the Senate should never be called on that day. If you see, uh, there are many, the, the, the star thing is pretty cool. So, I mean, it's, it, Suetonius reports it, um, and there are a few of the other Roman historians who report it as, as being like a common, a common conception amongst everyone in Rome that there was a star that shone for seven days in the sky after the, um, during the funeral. And if you see any depictions of Caesar in the Augustan age, he will always have a star on his forehead. Um, but there's already a, my a mythologizing going on quickly after Caesar's death. And you understand that he was, he's being regarded as a figure very different from anyone who's formerly led the Roman Republic. He is, he has, he ain't the first official emperor. That is Augustus. But even Augustus, we'll see, is a bit, it's a bit gray as to whether everyone in Rome knew he was actually an emperor sort of figure if he was, you know, leading an empire. Um, but there is an awareness of Caesar being, I mean, there's a misconception that Caesar was the first Roman emperor amongst quite a lot of people. Or if you said, who, like, give me a Roman emperor, quite a lot of people will say Julius Caesar. And that is wrong. But the awareness, I mean, the the kind of uh, religious aspect which Suetonius is tapping into there shows that he was a, definitely a figure which was being approached um, as as none other had previously. Um, so, what happens after the Ides of March, effectively, in a very sort of short history, what happens after this hugely significant uh, event? Um, so Caesar is murdered by Brutus and Cassius, and their friends end up uh, and ends up with 23 knives in his back. Boom. We've done that. The son of Caesar's niece, Attia, 18-year-old Gaius Octavius, inherits Caesar's fortune and Caesar's name, becoming Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, or Octavian. Caesar's former henchmen, Mark Antony and Lepidus, try to take power and authority. Mark Antony being Caesar's formal cavalry commander, uh, and later Caesar's colleague in the consulship, and he is supported by Lepidus, Caesar's cavalry commander, during the dictatorship from 46 to 44 BC, and elected off after Caesar's death as the new chief priest, Pontifex Maximus. This is a, Pontifex Maximus is a huge role in um, in Rome at this time, and you will see that uh, basically any prospective emperor, emperor uh, needs needs to have that role um, when it when it comes when it comes down to it, in, especially in later years proceeding from Augustus. Um, I should I should note that I've, I've turned away from Beard and gone to my gone some of my notes, so this history might be a bit a bit uh, a bit weaker. But nevertheless, uh, we proceed. Um, Octavian Lepidus and Mark Antony. Later form the triumvirate. It takes a year and half and a half from and half from Caesar's ass assassination till the triumvirate is established in 43 BC. So a year and a half later, we now have three people, effectively vying for a position, but they don't necessarily know what the position is. Th this triumvirate is they're basically you know think of the coalition government of Cameron and Clegg. Okay, so they're basically trying to <laughs> they're tr they're trying to keep everything glued together. To make it look like everything's running smoothly, but secretly, um, they all want a shot at this kind of new powerful position which Caesar has sort of uh, fashioned with his leaving and also during his his reign. 
um you can kind of think of octavian maybe as the maybe as the gordon brown figure kind of next door just managing the books but just waiting to pounce and he's going to get impatient uh pretty soon um so Cicero's writing is also crucial during this period. There's lots of letters to Atticus and Brutus, um, which are which are very good sources for this. Um, he writes in the Philippi, I think, but from the many evils which by him, Mark Antony, have been burned into the res publica, there is still this good, that the Roman people have now learned how much to believe everyone to whom to trust itself and against whom to guard. So Cicero kind of tapping into the just tensions, uh, the la inherent lack of trust now in Rome. You know, when Caesar has been turned on by effectively people he has saved, and effectively some of his mates, and they've just stabbed him to death 23 times, you know, it's going to be pretty hard to trust anyone uh, with any real political, with any political association. Um, so let's keep going. Um, in July, August 48 BC, Octavian marches on Rome with eight legions and seizes the consulship. I've jumped a bit forward here, um, but this is, this is effectively, uh, Octavian's getting, you know, impatient. He's got Caesar in his name, Antony and Lepolis, they're declared, they've been declared public enemies by the Senate. Um, you know, at this stage, it's kind of... Octavian has manufactured the Senate's uh, public opinion to be against Mark Antony and Lepidus. He has fashioned himself into a position where he's seen as the more favorable, not necessarily candidate, but the more favorable of the three. Um, Cicero, interestingly, is greeted by Octavian as the last of my friends during this period. Um, a very important thing here, the Lex Titia, which is the 27th of November, 43 BC. It's a law which establishes Octavian, Antony, and Lepidus as the three men charged with restoring uh, the with restoring the state. Um, so, aside from the fact of the Senate are underestimating Octavian, <clears throat> they're also unsure. It's it's a it's a rapidly changing period, so they're unsure as to who's to trust, who's to blame, who's to condemn. But in 43, with the Lex Titia, it seems like now the triumvirate has kind of re-steadied itself. It seems like these people are going to be, quote again, you know, the three-man charged with restoring the state. Um, the new system is, is celebrated by some cities in the empire. Um, it's originally meant to be for five years, the equivalent to a consul, but um, assumed, but, it's, but their imperium assumes supreme authority. And they effectively start to overstep their mark, unsurprisingly. Um, the triumvirate resulted in a suspension of normal judicial process, most notably seen in the decreeing of the prescriptions. Um, it's a whole other thing which we won't get into, but I mean, it's basically to prescriptions be to, um, to get rid of alleged criminals. Um, those prescribed were effectively hunted down and executed by squads of Roman soldiers. It was a very, I mean, you can only imagine that kind of, um, if you are a Roman living in this period, the the amount of tension and kind of uh, lack of insecurity you would feel. If your neighbor's getting prescribed, you're, you're uh, the leader of your own republic, which seems to be just following completely around, has just been, has just been murdered. There's now, a, there's now three people vying for it. There's all sorts of backstabbing going on between those three people. The Senate are saying one thing one day, then they're changing their minds. 
it's a very sort of um, turbulent situation. Um, so in 42 BC, so this has all been going on in the background. In 42 BC, Julius Caesar becomes a god. He is voted divine honors by the Roman Senate, becomes a divus officially. Um, the deified Julius, so this is crucial for Octavian. The, um, the official deification of Julius Caesar is crucial because he can now style himself as a sort of, uh, what would it be, a, a D.Y. Filius, the son of a god, the son of the deified Julius Caesar. If you need, if you needed any more of a stake in this game, um, there he, there you go. He's just got it. Um, son of a god, I am, I am the entitled one here. Within the public consciousness as well, that's definitely going to play in because there probably was. Um, I'm actually unsure of this. I imagine some of the historians will report on that, but there probably was quite a, a large amount of sympathy for what happened to Caesar amongst the Roman people at this time, especially when they see that you know, post match, there was no sort of master plan it's just falling apart the whole thing is falling apart no one really knows where it's going to go um a far more extreme example of uh you know maybe post brexit who knows what's going to happen you know it was like for three years of just what well, i mean who knows but anyway digress digress um so 42 bc battle of philippi this is crucial Brutus and cassius the tyrants are defeated by the triumph triumvial armies and following their victory the triumph uh, tweaks some of the Lex Titia, resulting in each triumvir now having their own influences. Antony gets the east, Octavian gets the west, including Italy, crucially, and Lepidus gets Africa. Remember Octavian during this period when I'm, when I'm saying he will later become Augustus. So there you go. So the conspirators have gone. Brutus and Cassius defeated at the Battle of Philippi. The triumvirate have re, uh, reorganized the Lex Titia, and it's basically been re reorganized without maybe Antony or Lepidus knowing it, but Octavian's now got uh, Octavian's now got the the best share. He's got the West. He's got Italy. Um, so the new arrangements also now allow the triumvir to appoint successors to key positions as governor or key military positions within the provinces under their command. If Octavian can appoint uh, you know people to key positions in Italy, that's going to work out pretty well in his favour. Um, the new arrangement also allows triumvirs access to military ba to military bases in their provinces to take financial advantages of their provinces. You could make a well, I mean, you could make a pretty strong point there. This at this stage, the portion of uh, the portion of land which Octavian has jurisdiction over is going to be far more economically, I don't know, uh, easier to manage and to kind of. Um, I don't know to to profit off of basically. I mean there's less there's more like the, the the money of the republic is still very much circulating around and if you just want to go in and take it i imagine it's not going to be too hard um okay so octavian's control over italy has now become a more important a more the most important element towards his final success in a way around this time uh I want to say 39, 40 BC, Antony marries um, Octavia, the sister of Octavian. Now, this is seen by many people, and obviously probably is, a move from Antony to try and get close to Octavian, to get close to Augustus. So there you go. There's an awareness in, in a way of uh, Antony seeing that Octavian is now really in the 
pole position and to one extent you can see why Octavia, Octavian would have welcomed such a thing because he is now kind of joined his family and the chances of Anthony turning on him have gone down slightly. Um, Sextus Pompey now feels let down by the triumvirs and starts a blockade of corn ships. This is followed by famine in Rome in November 40 which results in riots against the triumvirate. In August 39 BC Antony and Octavius meet Sextus to agree a peace deal. War continues. Two more victories over Octavian by Sextus in spring 38 BC. In 37 BC, a meeting between Antony and Octavian at Tarentum takes place. You know, civil war, Rome is in anarchy, there's famine, there's riots on the street. It's, you know, how many times do we see a situation where someone comes in with a coup to try and change uh, a position which they think is getting worse and actually just leads to an absolute vacuum of power? to avoid which is which takes years to be filled and it's always violent and bloody and in the end the people that the conspirators were allegedly standing up for are the ones who have to suffer um octavian medi mediates between uh the meetings um later appears on a coin depicted on as a concordian personification of concord and harmony um there's a, another peace treaty between octavian and antony in july or august uh, there's an awareness there that if they're having to make a peace treaty between each other, there's a pretty strong chance that they're going to fall out. Um, the triumvirate is renewed half a year late for another five years until the 1st of January 32 BC. Um, this crucially allows Augustus Octavian to claim that he was triumvir for setting the Republic in order for 10 consecutive years. He writes about this in his Res Gestae, which is a really interesting text. He, um, the Res Gestae, list of his achievements, um, they were put on, you can go and see them in Turkey, they're preserved in Turkey, but they were, they were outside the, um, whereabouts, outside the, uh, in the Forum of Rome, basically, huge, on huge tablets, this text where Augustus basically says, I did X, Y, Z, you're welcome. Um, uh, it is a pretty good read and Res Gestae 7 I was triumvir for setting the Republic in order for 10 consecutive years now obviously one can make a pretty good case that uh, there ain't any order going on during this time but nevertheless that's the line that's the political line that Octavian can use um, so skipping slightly ahead here this is very interesting Octavian resigns the title uh, resigns the office and is now a private citizen a privatus um however, only formally abolishes and takes distance from the triumviral emergency measures in 28 BC. So we now see that he's trying to basically, once having got himself into a formal position of power, distance himself and take, a, take himself away from it, so as not to be seen as a usurper of power, but just a kind of common man. Um, Octavian... Uh, in early 32 BC, the new consuls choose the side of Mark Antony. Octavian enters the Senate with an armed guard. Consuls and many of the senators did not flee, did not all flee to Antony. Antony divorces Octavian's sister, um, Octavia. Things not going well in the family. No surprises. Um, the ruling class at this stage actually ask Octavian to be their leader, the ducks. Um, the whole of Italy, this is crucial here, this is 32 BC. The whole of Italy, Tota Italia, makes an oath of allegiance to Octavian. Uh, it's not really an, an improvement of his legal status, but has, an immense, but has immense moral implications, as the oath is made to one side in a civil conflict, um, even if the war is presented as one, as one power against a foreign power. Um, 
So in 31 BC, Octavian declares war on Cleopatra. And I'm sorry if you've been struggling to follow this. I've been struggling to follow this myself. But the, but basically, the if you if we think of so Mark Antony at this stage has has run off uh, with Cleopatra, um, and um, Octavian uses this as his final. So Lepidus is is effectively out of the picture at this stage. The triumvirate is kind of falling apart. And it's really Antony or Octavian who's going to move in, and Antony has. Um, gone to Cleopatra, very much in love. And Octavian uses uh, her uh, position and basically, quote, he basically uh, attacks Antony for wanting to bring in a foreign um, and, quote, dangerous uh, aspect into Rome through Cleopatra. When you think of Cleopatra in popular culture, especially in like the swords and sandals movies of like the 1960s and stuff like that she's always um you know kind of interpreted as uh like a femme fatale a foreign femme fatale with like snakes around her neck and all this sort of stuff that image that lasting image of cleopatra has has just stayed from the propaganda of octavian during this time um the idea that you know she was some sort of uh yeah, exactly that. A foreign femme fatale with bad influences, anti-Roman, basically. And Antony was, uh, you know, in love with someone who was anti-Roman, who was going to, you know, let in, um, v v you know, values, customs, which were untraditional and unwanted, uh, you know, t t you know, using... Um, using foreign culture as a scapegoat is a is a is a political technique which has been used for years um, to some more worrying degrees than others. But the the propaganda and the image which Octavian fashioned for Cleopatra so as to attack Antony and to get the Roman people on his side has been lasting and is only really now starting to change. Um, but Antony and Cleopatra doesn't go that well for them in the end. And they are defeated at the Battle of Actium on the 2nd of September. They escape to Egypt before dying in 30 BC. This, the Battle of Actium, is the crucial, crucial point. With Antony gone and Lepidus out of the picture, um, it's really now time for Octavian to step in and, um, and take control of the... of what the... Is it the empire? Is it the republic? No one is really that sure. Um, and even Augustus himself is, is slightly unsure and slightly wary of, of not wanting to take on a role which is seen as tyrannical or dictatorial because that's what led to um, the assassination of his namesake. But the Ides of March is undeniably a pretty big butterfly moment. Um, had it not happened, you could see Caesar probably riding the storm out and being in power for another 20 years and then would you have had augustus augustus we don't have time to go into it but augustus is a figure who is um undeniably shaped the fab you know the um the makeup and framework of uh at least the part of the world we that you know i live in at least europe at least kind of uh the western landscape um well i suppose and further than that and further than that when you look at the roman empire in its heyday and basically everything it kind of uh everywhere it got involved in and kind of uh left worse off in its wake um 
but I mean, you know, has that Roman Empire, which was allowed to was allowed to be given birth to by the Ides of March, has that Roman Empire ever really left? You know, do we we uh, most of most of the places which it once occupied, especially under the rule of Constantine, still follow Christianity, still follow the same religion as you know. Eventually, when they switched sides, the Roman Empire and decided, hey, we'll allow this. Most most people. Most nations in Europe and the places it, it once occupied still follow that to a T. Um, all of Europe speaks a derivation of its own language, uh, whether one way or not. Um, all Romance languages, you know, all roads do lead back to Rome. Um, people, people, you know, we live in cities that were founded by Romans. Uh, we walk on their roads, you know, how much is, has their influence really left us? Um, and how much has their influence left? How much is their influence left in terms of the players that we've been talking about today, like a Caesar, like an Augustus, when we think of how much he defined the role of an, emp of an um, emperor? Um, you know, there are definitely, definitely political figures who have, who have taken on a sort of, um, or have tried to take on an imperial role within the, uh, within the nation's that they have power of some, some to a subtle extent, and some to quite an obvious, um, to quite an obvious extent. Um, but yeah, beware of the Ides of March. Um, I hope you enjoyed me taking you taking you through this. Um, it was certainly an interesting one. Um, I think when I went off beard, I got I, it was probably harder to follow. But um, I hope you got the basic picture. Um, so. If you're going for drinks later with a close friend or, uh, I don't know, making some food in your kitchen of your house, just make sure that no one's putting anything in the sauce pot. Uh, you know, today's the day. But uh, I digress. Um, we are going to be... Zach will be back. He was he was in an exam today. That's why he wasn't with me. Uh, very sad. He'll be back on... We'll be back on Friday evening, I believe. I don't know if we've actually booked out the studio, but we're going to look to get our friend Viola in. Um, and we will, I don't know if we're going to do any during the off-term period. I hope we will. I think Zach and I are going to be staying here for a bit, so we can maybe do that um, to just keep it going over the Easter break. Um, but we will definitely be back next term and maybe in more abundance once exams are out of the way and everything. Uh, but it's my time to go. Thank you very much uh, for listening in. And... We will be back soon. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.